Hey everyone, it's Reed. My conversation today is with author Jeff Charlotte. We recorded this before Trump's indictment and before the insanity we've seen of the last week or 10 days, but do not miss it. He is an incredible writer who has written an incredible book, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Charlotte. He's a professor of creative writing and the Frederick Sessions Beebe, 35, professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. His writing and photography have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, and Vanity Fair, for which he is a contributing editor. He's written quite the catalog of books, including his latest title, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, now available wherever fine books are sold. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Reed. Good to be with you. So I thought your book was fascinating because when you call it scenes, the experiences you have and the way you describe them are almost like one or two or three man plays because they're always in a very unique location with very unique individuals. There's always an event or something in the background that really sets the scene for what you're describing. As we open with the book, the one question I want to have is, why do you spend so much time with your subjects in the middle of the night? Huh, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of interesting conversations happen then. You know, my last book was called This Brilliant Darkness, but it was really about night shift, which is where I often find myself working by inclination. But I am also interested in those kinds of night conversations and the kind of vulnerabilities and truths and also imaginations that people share at that time. I love what you say about, you know, these like little two, three man plays, right? And I think about the way sometimes political pundits describe something in politics as just theater. And to me, I'm like, what do you mean just theater? If we're going to understand our political moment, we need to understand a kind of a dream logic. And of course, a dream logic is something that we often encounter later in the evening. Right, because maybe you're tired, so the effects of fatigue have taken over. Maybe you're addled by alcohol or something else. Maybe you're wound up by something else, right? So, you know, you could either have a sensibility that's dulled or an aspect maybe that's totally wound up, right? Depending on what it is you've chosen to imbibe. And then the company matters too. I found it interesting that you and your friends or maybe colleagues would basically go to a hotel room party with a bunch of sort of incel guys and they're maybe i shouldn't call them strange maybe i should call them fascinating sort of female enablers it must have been surreal maybe that's the word that we should be using to be in this place with these people at this time yeah that's from a, an essay called whole bottle of red pills I've been writing about right-wing movements of all sorts for 20 years, and part of what's always drawn me is they are almost always more interesting and more complex than their media caricature. They may be just as dangerous as their character, but they're people with ideas, except for the so-called men's rights activists, these guys who think that men are the oppressed class. They're not the most dangerous because they're not the most powerful, but they are the worst. I'll just say that plainly. They are the only group that is actually dumber than their caricature, and their caricature is dumb. They have these real issues about 
male suicide, which is wildly higher, about incarceration, about men in labor, about boys in schools and so on. They have all these real issues. And then you go to their convention in Detroit, Michigan, and it's guys speaking in the most violent and hateful terms about ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, or more importantly, the girlfriends they never had and feel that they were owed. And in that piece, two friends of mine whose names I changed were also interested in writing about this, and they were there. One of them was a woman. The other guy is actually a trans man, but we didn't volunteer that to the incels. But yeah, we go to their hotel room pretty late. They're getting high. And the leader of this group, his name is Paul Elam, says, tell me the truth to my friend, whom I call Ellen in the book. What did your friend say when you said you were going to come here? And she said, to be honest, she said, they were afraid I was going to get raped. And his response, the leader of this movement, the guy who says, let's take this seriously, says, let's get started. And I say in the book, I say, we all know he's joking. And joking goes in scare quotes, though, because that's the kind of ethos of the age, joking, not joking. No, you say something about that in particular. You talk about how you say something seriously, then you say, I'm just joking, but maybe I'm not joking, but I am joking. And before you know it, the joke has become serious. Yeah. I think, you know, the most perfect example of that is the evolution of sort of Trump's divine appointment, which... You know, I began reporting on Trumpism and I emphasize the movement, right? There's the guy and then there's the movement. That's how I think of it. I mean, as soon as he came down the golden escalator in 2015, because I've been writing about the right for so long, and I recognize that this was a man whom some factions of the American right have supported in other countries. And now here it was come home to us. So I was always sort of kind of following the religiosity of it. What is that ethos until I get to 2020? the 2020 campaign, and it had gotten much darker. And that joking, not joking thing, he'd taken that. Do you remember when he first said, I'm the chosen one? Yeah. Standing on the South Lawn of the White House. Yeah. Yeah. He was joking and he successfully trolled a lot of liberals who said, he thinks he's God. No, he doesn't. But now he does. Joking, not joking. You know, first time, the farce, second time, the tragedy. It's an inversion of the old formula. And you see that again and again in the escalation of his rhetoric. I mean, really, frankly, if we just go to Waco this past weekend, where now the way he would flirt and wink at QAnon once, it is a wholehearted, militant and apocalyptic embrace, which we could have understood. And I think the Lincoln Project did understand was always coming. Wherever Trump is, is not where he's going to end up. Let me ask you this and let me diverge away the book has many of the things that you're talking about in it, but I want to diverge away from it just for a sec because I want to focus on this movement piece that you recognized. Now, I will say this. I didn't when I saw him come down the escalator. I thought he was a joke. And I've written about this. I sat in a room full of national political reporters when he said the thing about McCain and we said it's over and it wasn't. I was in a bar full of political reporters when he said the thing about Megyn Kelly and we said it's over and it wasn't. And then, Jeff, he did four or five more things before the end of 2015 that we thought would be the end of him. It wasn't. But I think that the movement piece is right. And what I think I believe in that we posit, Jeff, is that this is an authoritarian movement. He is its leader. The Republican Party is its political wing. It has to have somebody that runs for office and he's doing that. But he's really pulling double duty in that case. But I think sometime between 
January 6th and probably like a year ago, the movement actually moved past him into a weirder and darker space. And I think he's rushing to catch up to it. I agree completely. In the book, I go to a church in Omaha, Nebraska, Lord of Hosts, which is presided over by Hank Kuhneman, Pastor Hank Kuhneman, sort of a rising star in that kind of prophetic far right. And he says, Trump will return either the man himself or the spirit of Trump, you know, fleshed in the body of another. And I think that's important to understand about movements. I agree with you about that turning point. And in fact, it's one of the things that makes me sort of frustrated with those on the left or liberals sort of sort of say, well, he's, we've always known this. And I'm like, no, what we're watching is something mutating in real time. And the book is an essay called TikTok, which is a QAnon reference. And it was in the summer of 2020, an interview with Laura Ingram. And like you and many others, I was steeped for a long time in Trump rhetoric. And I always marveled. I, I will say this, and this infuriates some people, is one of the two best orators I've ever seen, Obama and Trump. Trump, when he's on, he's not always on. But I mean, he can own a crowd. He owned a crowd. He used what it gave them. He used QAnon references. He flirted with it. In this interview with Laura Ingram, he starts talking about dark shadows, men in black uniforms. They're in airplanes. And you can see Laura Ingram getting alarmed. He's starting to look like so many of the QAnon followers. He's drunk his old Kool-Aid. He's crossed over. He's lost in the nightmare that he created. And I think that moment, once he gets lost in it, we're nightmaring it together with him now. And he's down here in the abyss with us. And I love the fact that you use nightmaring as a verb. I thought it was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But I think that, as you say, you're right. I think now he's not leading the movement. This is the undertow, right? He opened the floodgates and then he jumped in and now it's pulling us all out to see him included. And I don't think that should give anybody solace. If people say he's lost it or he's crazy or he's not in charge, that doesn't make his movement less dangerous. It makes the movement more dangerous. It doesn't need him. It has him. But I think it's got the momentum even without him right now. I mean, look, we believe as an organization that Trump is probably the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party for 2024. He might not be, but if he's not, he and his most fervent followers will destroy the Republican Party in retribution for it. They're not Republicans. They're not conservatives. They're there for him. I feel like, Jeff, and I feel like you saw some of these people, whether or not it was around the Ashley Babbitt stuff or in the VFW halls, which, you know, having done more events for more candidates in VFW halls are such a great backdrop for this stuff, is that to your point about the QAnon stuff, there's the storm coming. There's this fight, those people. And just like he's not a normal politician, these are not normal political followers. They're movement followers, and it's a different thing. Yeah. And I think the other thing that trips people up is they're not normal political followers. And because there's a religiosity to it, people assume that they're normal Christians. Most of the people I encounter in these books, outside of the sort of the big militia churches I go to, they all aspire to this Christian nationalism. Very few of them are churchgoers. The Proud Boys who I run into brawling at the Justice for Ashley Babbitt rally in Sacramento, those guys weren't going to church. I went to church. I went to the church that is affiliated with that movement there. I didn't see any of the Proud Boys. They were out drinking. It's amazing to me now that so much of the political press, here we are in 2023, we are having these same pointless conversations about an evangelical block in the same way that Trump, the movement went ahead of Trump. 
Christian nationalism raced ahead of all the old Christian right leaders. They don't own it. They can't direct it. And I think trying to understand that in those kinds of voting blocks, it isn't going to work. I highlighted a passage here about the sort of blindness of some of your colleagues and even some of the people that I worked with, some of the establishment folks that I know in what, you know, I call the Acela Corridor at the sort of New York to D.C. You said, quote, if Trump said it was a joke, reporters reported that claim. They wanted to believe that some norms still held. Some feared that if they acknowledged just how far beyond norms he'd gone, they'd be normalizing the new American spectrum, one in which dictatorship had become not just a hyperbolic charge thrown around by each party's most heated partisans, but an actual idea. I mean, that is where we are, Jeff. And a lot of people either don't want to or are incapable of understanding that place in the world. Yeah, I think I came to that because my sort of two great interests as a writer have been right-wing movements and religion. And I want to emphasize they're not the same thing. When they cross over, that's like, oh, great, two birds with one stone for me in terms of things I like to write about, but they don't always and, and so on. But in terms of writing about religion, what you learn from writing about religion is that you respect the beliefs of others by listening to them and taking them at their word. You know, the way I framed this years ago, this is years ago, I was writing about a mega church in Colorado Springs. And at the same time, New York Times Magazine had a piece on, I think it was in Arizona, it was an Assemblies of God mega church, which is a conservative denomination for which the concept of spiritual war is very central. And at this church, it was very central. Doesn't appear in the article. And later there's an editor, uh, interview with the editor and he says, well, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, we didn't want to make them look crazy. And I'm like, so you erased a central tenet of their faith because it didn't conform, you thought it made them look crazy. It's true, if you were to go to the Trump movement, explicit QAnon followers are still a minority, but people who have absorbed QAnon ideas at all the Trump rallies I've been to, and I, I never went as press, I can't stand that, I don't wanna be a prop for his wrestling match. I would just stand in line and go for six hours and then go in and be with the crowd. I never met anyone who had not absorbed some element of QAnon. And then, of course, they always experience themselves as rational. Well, I do think that they're draining the blood of children. I don't think JFK Jr. is still alive. I'm not crazy. You have that kind of spectrum that allows you always to feel like you're the rational one holding on to land. Well, and somewhere in the book, I think you write that the right wing movements, and I'm going to say this and it's going to sound weird, are very welcoming. They'll take whatever crazy you've got to give. I think of this mini mega church in Northern California, Yuba City, California, uh, the Church of Glad Tidings, north of Sacramento. This is a church that stayed open throughout COVID-19 and sort of elevated itself to kind of a, a national platform in the very strong anti-vax crowd so that, you know, folks like Candace Owen and General Flynn, people may have seen that video of General Flynn being gifted a customized AR-15, which he jokes about taking to Washington there. And I go there for a sermon at which I'm told at the Ashley Babbitt rally that I will understand why Ashley died. It's this three-hour sermon by a leader in the so-called sovereign citizen movement. And the stuff this guy says is so far out there that I'm sure this crowd of suburban folks is going to say, give me a break. For instance, he brings us the news that Hillary Clinton has already been executed. You've seen her since? No, it's green screens. And that Trump is still president. He's the 19th president. because. Everyone else since then has been illegal. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, is he going to lose them there? Because, you know, it says 45 on Trump's hat. And he doesn't. 
you know, it's a little bit, you have to, again, understand kind of religious movements. He's in the word. You're able to sort of coexist with kind of multiple realities. And I would talk to folks in the lobby. I remember a young woman, college student, bright person. I asked her about Hillary Clinton's supposed execution. He goes, yeah, I hadn't heard that before. That's really interesting. And these people, again, aren't crazy. They're not mentally ill. I reject those kinds of arguments about mass psychosis. That's not the problem. But if it's not mass psychosis, how has it attracted so many? I mean, is it the wave that's crashing over us? Because you're right. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know. But what is it then that happens to collect so many people? Can I give you a little paragraph? Please, of course. Go ahead. So this is from the Ashley Babbitt rally. And Ashley Babbitt's mother, Mickey Whithoff, has just let her cry. There's Black Lives Matters protesters because it's the 28th birthday of Breonna Taylor. This is in Sacramento at the state capitol, which is in a giant sort of tree-filled plaza. I used to live in Sacramento, Jeff. It's beautiful. On the west side, you've got the steps. And on the east side, you've got steps. And they are regular places for political events to occur. Protest places, right. So these protests merge and the Black Lives Matters protesters come around chanting Black Lives Matter. And Mickey Whithoff, Ashley Babbitt's mother, is sort of saying, how come people know about Breonna Taylor, but not Ashley Babbitt? So they chant, Black Lives Matter, and she chants, Ashley Babbitt, and she gets the crowd going. And it's sort of like, here is our response to all this black death, one white woman. And I'm thinking about who these people are and how they come to think of themselves as victims. And so this is part of the thinking in the book about it. Such victims feel themselves drawn together, not by whiteness, but by that of which it is made, by their belief in a strong man and their desire for an iron-fisted God and their love of the way guns make them feel inside. And I should say, I'm a gun owner, not throwing rocks here, I understand this. And their grief over COVID-19 and their denial of COVID-19 and their loathing of systemic as descriptive of that which they can't see, can't hold in their hands and way, and their certainty that countless children are being taken, stolen, and raped, or if not in body, then in spirit, indoctrinated to hate themselves. They're angry about their own bodies, about how other people's bodies make them feel, about eating too much because they're afraid they won't have enough, about not having enough, about others having more. They're drawn together by their love of fairness, which is how it used to be. They're certain they remember, or if they're too young, they've been told, or maybe they've all just seen it in a movie, a Western or a space opera or a revenge fantasy, the forever frontier that is equal parts, Little House on the Prairie and The Punisher. I don't mean that as a sympathetic defense that they're hurting. I think the word empathy has gotten kind of a bad rap lately because people confuse it with sympathy. You can have empathy for the devil. In fact, you'd better. I don't have any sympathy for the January Sixers. I don't have any sympathy for Ashley Babbitt. But I understand, I did the work to understand how that makes sense, how it might make sense to her. And we've got to do that if we're going to organize and build something more beautiful. Or if you, you know, traditional conservatives and, and Republicans are going to I don't know. I think the idea of taking back your party, I have to say, you said he's going to destroy it. What do you mean going to? <laughs> Touche. Touche. You're right. Let's talk about Ashley Babbitt. So Ashley Babbitt obviously was the young woman who was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer on January 6th. But you note, and, and I think it was an important notation on your part, that her martyrdom was not immediate. No. And I thought it would be. I mean, that's sort of in many ways where the book as it took shape began, and the largest part of it is sort of following this martyr myth of Ashley Babbitt. 
we saw her die kind of in real time on that day of that video of her kind of leading a charge and climbing through a broken window in the congressional speaker's hall. And we see the hands of an officer, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, a plainclothes Capitol Police officer, shoot her. And the hands are black. We don't see anything more. And she's a white woman. And when I saw that, I just sort of, as, as a student of American history and American myth and even American film, I was like, oh, that's the lynching story. Innocent white womanhood. And that part did begin immediately. They began aging her backwards so that by the end of the day, you saw these sort of January 6th streamers. She's 35 years old. They've aged her back to 16. She's a small woman. They've made her smaller. They're turning her into sort of an innocent little white girl killed by a big black predator lurking in the darkness. And that showed up online for a little while, but Trump didn't embrace it. And that was the full turn for six months until the day the Trump organization was indicted. And then he puts out a press release that says, who shot Ashley Babbitt? One sentence. And he starts asking and telling stories about it and on Fox. And he'll ask, in fact, we do know who shot her, but he keeps insisting that it's being kept secret. And it doesn't matter. The facts don't matter. Saying she shot in the head. No, she wasn't. She was shot in the shoulder. But it's better for the story if she shot in the head. So that was that story that then starts churning once Trump gives it its official endorsement. To be honest, I thought it would build sooner and then subside sooner. It took six months to get to full steam. By the time I was traveling across the country, I was meeting people who claimed that they had met her or they dreamed of her. Then she's becoming a myth. And now she surges on social media every few days. Her mother just met with Kevin McCarthy. Her mother, who is now a full, was not a political woman, is now a full on, there's nothing, no word for it, but fascist. Tucker Carlson talking about her, always insisting she's unarmed. And, and I, well, we're not doing video, so you can't see, but the cover of the book is the evidence photograph from January 6th of the knife that she carried. And some people say, well, that's a small, you know, handy knife. Uh, tell me about the last time you took a four inch knife onto a plane. You were not taking that through the Capitol on your tourist visit, that's for sure. You mentioned that Ashley Babbitt's mother just met with Kevin McCarthy. You know, there's stories told by guys like Officer Mike Fanone, who I've interviewed here, about going in not only to McCarthy, but Lindsey Graham with Brian Sicknick's mother and the sort of cold reception they received or from Lindsey Graham, you know, the hot reception they received. When he said, if you're going to come in here and blame Trump, I've got nothing for you. I've been talking more about these forks in the road that the McCarthy's of the world face continually, and they never go towards the light. They always go towards the darkness. We talk about the crisis of democracy. We talk about, too, the crisis of climate, right? This is a kind of a rhetoric and language that suggests that uh, Trump loves that language. Crisis language works great. That's why he's saying now we're in the final battle. But it's also very indicative of authoritarian movements. There must always be the continuing fight. There's always a crisis as opposed to our condition. Climate, sadly, it's not a crisis. It's our condition. It's not like, boy, if only Bruce Willis can aim the spaceship into the meteor, we can go back to a totally normal climate. No, this is how we live now. And I think in a way that we keep wondering, or the political press keeps wondering, will Kevin McCarthy go toward the light? Will Nikki Haley return the party to its moorings? No, that's our condition. When Nikki Haley comes out, the so-called moderate the other day, and says, what does she say? 90% of kindergartners are living under, under, this was her term, 
critical race theory. And that wokeness was more dangerous than any pandemic. Yeah. This is not a person who's coming back. This is a person who was swept out to sea. She is lost at sea. This is the condition that we're in. And as long as we stay in that crisis frame of, well, maybe Nikki Haley will save the party. Give me a break. Give me a break. Joan Didion famously says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And some people mistake that line for a good thing. That's telling ourselves stories in order to live. Let's recognize the condition. And, you know, one of the undercurrents of the book, right, is thinking about how does this authoritarianism, and I do call it, I use the F word, I call it fascism. I didn't used to. I spent most of my life as a fairly left writer saying, look, fascism is hyperbolic. That's not what this is. There's more than one kind of trouble under the sun. But I do think Trump crossed over. When did he cross over and what made you finally decide that the F word was appropriate? I started contemplating it at a rally in Youngstown, Ohio, in I think April 2016 or March 2016. And I had wanted to cover Trump from the escalator on, and I'd gone to my editors and I'd said, let me cover this because I'd written about American support for strongman leaders in other countries. So I'd seen this sort of like there was ways in which, you know, the Lindsey Grahams of the world were willing to sort of make their peace with that abroad, but they drew a line, right? Establishment Republicanism wouldn't quite cross that line here. And when Trump came down, I'm like, oh, that's the strong man. That is literally the strong man coming down the escalator. So I go to my editors and I say, let me write about this. And they're like, no, no, Charlotte, you know, we like you, but you're not funny enough. Trump's a joke and we need our funniest man on the job. So I'm sort of looking at this thing and watching it build steam and watching people miss it. And by the time I got to that rally in Youngstown, which was opened by the hardest right Christian right speaker I'd ever heard. And I've been in some churches, you know, and I see the press corps back there and they're not paying attention. They're looking at their phones because this is just a preacher who cares. And none of the people there are churchgoers, but they're loving it. And I also knew from reporting in Russia, I knew that same project. Putin also uses Christian nationalism. Russians don't go to church. Their church attendance is in the single digits, but they love the idea of the holy Russian nation. Same deal here. Well, I mean, Putin's a former communist. And she is a communist, but I'm not a political scientist, so I speak to colleagues and scholars who are, who really study fascism in its historical sense. I think it is fair to call both Putin and Xi in China fascist. That is the form of government they've embraced. We live in a global fascist moment. Trump is our burden, but he's not the only one. And the things that I thought wouldn't happen in the United States, the biggest thing is I said, well, you know, American fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism will ensure that we never actually have that kind of fascism because we will never displace the father, God, for a Fuhrer, for a cult of personality. And we always have had a strain of violence in America, but we like to pretend that we don't really do it. We like to be the good guys. What does Trump do? He opens the door to a cult of personality. In Youngstown, Ohio, people screaming almost orgasmically as his giant plane comes into view. And the violence, think about the way those rallies, the pleasure people took in imagining getting their hands on a reporter. Again, the press doesn't do this. They don't pay attention at the rallies. They'll go to a rally, Trump will make a joke about staying in office for 12 years. That's the line. The 20 minutes he spends describing an incredibly graphic detail, machetes, disembowelments, decapitations, rape, rape, rape. And he opens the door on this, right? And now a figure like Ron DeSantis, he doesn't even have to say it. 
It's now the language. Even Nikki Haley can invoke it and does under critical race theory, white children being taught to hate themselves. I mean, this is Pizzagate by another name. So that I think is where we get into fascism. We get into the cult of personality, not just the cult of violence, but pleasure in violence. So I want to stay on violence for a second. So you're in another, I think it's a VFW hall. In Layton, Utah? Yeah. And you're talking to the man who is a conservative but doesn't want anything to do with Trump and Tom. But at the end, it's the man who says, quote, if I could have a selective machine gun, the man cradled an invisible one in his arms, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. I'd have blasted every goddamn one of them to hell and back. Look, I'm going to fight as long and as hard as I need to, but it's in the context of politics and elections. That concerned me. It's most definitely there. And, you know, when you said like these like two or three man plays, I go into this VFW and late in Utah. I'd gone down there to meet a three percenter, which is a, a militia member. And he told me he was going to tell me about Utah style militias, which he said are nicer. So Utah militias are nice, but he couldn't meet with me. So I go to the VFW and this is old school Republican, a smart guy, veteran. And he ends up having this dialogue with himself back and forth. I think probably in an internal dialogue, many longtime Republicans have had with themselves. And then his, his friend who has crossed over and then they reenact the killing of Ashley Babbitt. But it comes to, in the end, the man who is the voice of reason saying, I would have mowed them down. I thought about that too with Ashley Babbitt in the sense, if you go online or God forbid, go in the comments on you know the press coverage of it, you will find a lot of liberals taking pleasure in her death. I don't take pleasure in her death. Or you'll find people saying, bring it on, civil war. We'll, we'll show them what's what. Nobody wins a civil war. You keep lining up men with guns on opposite sides weekend after weekend in America, and we are striking the match. You know, we are trying to get the spark. You know, I do want to ask something about your style of interviewing, because you have a great footnote here, and this is you describing a reporter. And he said, quote, he is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. You know who else does that? Spies. I wish those were my words. Those are the great Janet Malcolms from her great book, The Journalist and the Murderer. And in that footnote, and I should say, this is not like academic footnotes. I wanted an undertow of footnotes because I think we don't actually really know how to tell stories about what I do think is fascism. And I wanted to be sort of have a countercurrent. Some of these footnotes are arguing with a body. And I talk about that. You know, I'm aware of that movement. You know, a lot of these people, it's not in their interest to talk to me. And what's fascinating is in, you know, many, many years of writing about right wing movements, they always do. They always say, it's no mistake you came here. You're going to be converted, or my words are somehow going to transmit through you. Now, for the first time, you know, Three times I got kind of menaced on this long trip across the country following the ghost of Ashley Babbitt, first surrounded by Proud Boys. And luckily, a guy vetted for me. He shouldn't have, but he did. At Lauren Boebert's Shooter's Grill, which is like Hooters, but with guns. And the manager kind of comes at me like he thinks we're in a Western with his hand kind of hovering over his sidearm. And at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and they're just saying, we don't care if you're converted. People may have seen a flag. It's an American flag, but it's all black. It's not the Blue Lives Matter flag, you know, black and white with a blue stripe, all black. 
It's also ahistorical. They believe it's from the Civil War, but it's not. It means no mercy, no quarter. A civil war is coming, and when it does, we take no prisoners. We kill everybody on the other side. So that's a twist. That's a movement from, let me convert you. I'm not going to try and convert you. There's no converting you. I'm not going to take you prisoner. When the shooting starts, aiming for you. So I want to get to one last thing, one line, and then I want to talk about the beginning and the end of the book, because I thought those were unique. This is while you're at Shooters, and you're talking about mountains, right, as you're driving through the Mountain West. And you said, speaking about the mountains, but they were never awake or always awake, always sleeping, rising, sinking. How does a body come apart? How does democracy dissolve? It subsides. And I thought that was fabulous because we're not really in the era of coups at the end of a gun anymore. No, I mean, I think slow motion coup is the Lincoln Project and myself and others sort of were speaking back in 2020 in the election. That's why I call it a slow civil war. I believe there's already casualties in this slow civil war. I, I don't see anything as inevitable. I think inevitability is the politics of authoritarianism and crisis and fascism, right? Democracy is the opposite of inevitability. It's possibility. But I think we keep looking for that singular moment. Will there be another January 6th? No, there'll be um, a March 28th. You know, it's the slow erosion of democracy. I think when authoritarian movements happen, it's because there's lots of movements converging. And that's sort of like why I'm writing about the men's rights movement and the prosperity gospel church folks and the militia folks. It's all kind of converging, right? You know, think about all the Trump supporters who are fans of Andrew Tate, you know, the former ultimate fighter, whatever, who's now indicted himself in Romania for sex trafficking, or Jordan Peterson. These guys got these tons and tons of young followers, these dudes who are incels or driven by really kind of open misogyny. And they're so weird. I'm not talking about the fans. I'm talking about the purveyors. They're always so strange. Yeah, but that's the pleasure. That's the, to go back to Ashley Babbitt, right? Because I want to understand how this woman, veteran, many tours, Iraq and Afghanistan, not a distinguished record. Although when I spoke to people, it seemed that she actually, part of why she had never really advanced is because she was the one who would stand up to a bullying officer. Not a great way to get ahead. Not even a Republican. Loved Obama, Democrat. And you see her all her life sort of trying to do the right thing. Then she gets in over her head with debt. And she is living next to the border. And where she is in Southern California, huge homeless problem. She doesn't know how to understand it. So she just sees like, ah, fuck, I'm tired of trying to be a decent person. What if I just give in? What if I allow myself to hate? And it's like you lean back into that current. And now once you stop struggling against that current, it carries you far. I've seen this. I have a former student, a friend, a Vermonter. Through Bernie, he got interested in paying attention to the war in Yemen. And then that got him one step, one step, one step. Then he was a, an anti-vaxxer. Now he's a full 100% QAnon guy who is in direct opposition to so much of what he formerly believed. But he seems not bitter. He seems actually kind of joyful. He's given in to all these ugly currents. And what they've given him is both a freedom, to your point, to be maybe his worst self, but also and this is something that Tom Nichols, who I had on the show a couple of episodes ago, this idea that I too can be Tony Stark and Iron Man, that I'm part of something bigger than myself. Yes. And that the way that you do that 
Look at Trump. How did he do it? Look at Andrew Tate. How did he do it? How does Joe Rogan do it? He speaks his id. These guys let it all hang out. It feels countercultural. It feels transgressive. You know, I think about it in the context, maybe this is way off chart, but I think about Howard Stern, right? Howard Stern has always been a fascinating figure, come out as a real never Trumper. But his whole radio shtick and how he rose to power was like, I'm just going to say whatever is in my mind. And a lot of people heard it and said, what a monster. And I would talk to radio people, NPR people, and they'd say, oh, Howard's a genius. And I'd say, really? I thought you would hate Howard Stern. It's like, no. I mean, listen to what he's doing. He's unpacking all this ugly stuff in his head in real time. What Trump does is he unpacks it and then leaves the mess on the floor. And I think you see folks like Ashley Babbitt and the folks who would who dream that they see Ashley Babbitt, the militia guys I meet in Wisconsin, the folks who are going to churches that, I mean, when the church just says, you know what, it's so hard. I want to be a macho American man, but I'm supposed to love and be peaceful. What if I just decided as the Church of Glad Tidings in Yuba City does, you know what, we don't need crosses anymore. That's too wimpy. They don't have crosses in the church. They have a pulpit made of swords. They said, that's the metaphor for now. They sort of took a Game of Thrones appeal to it. Yeah. Did you watch Game of Thrones? I did. It's entertaining. And imagine if you could believe that you're living that real time. But also what a brutal world it was. One of the first episodes of the first season said, you know, what of the small folk? The small folk want a good harvest in a summer that it never ends, hoping that as we play our Game of Thrones, they'll be left alone. They never are. Now, so let's talk about the beginning and the end of the book, because I'll be honest with you, when I first read the first essay, I was interested in it because I remember in elementary school singing, Deo, Deo, right? So like that tune is locked in my brain, but I wasn't quite clear on Harry Belafonte. Now, I will also say that it was an instruction to me because I had no idea how incredibly impactful he was in a time when many African-American, I guess he's from the Caribbean, you know, people did not have that ability. And he found himself in so many places of major national import. He was. So the book opens with a long piece about Harry Belfonte. And I'm so grateful to my publisher, Norton, for letting me do that because somewhere there's a calculator that will allow you to calculate how many book sales I'm going to lose because of that. People are like, yeah, I heard about this book all about what's going on with fascism in America. What? Deo. But I think it's necessary, partly because I couldn't stand to open the book with some of the ugliness. There's a lot of darkness. This is not another word of the Trump books. I've written about sort of elite right-wing movements. This is, I'm writing about everyday people. It's not about access and like, we'll never believe what so-and-so said. I didn't want to make a book that would be an object of despair that would contribute to that. And I also don't think that's factually true. There is no inevitability. I began at the beginning of the book, I knew the last line because I'd already, I'd written this essay first about an even more forgotten figure. It's the end, it's the bookend. A guy named Lee Hayes, nobody knows who Lee Hayes was. But if you've ever heard of all these songs in the American songbook, If I Had a Hammer, most famously, but Goodnight Irene, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, and On Top of Old Smokey, then you know Lee Hayes and his singing partner, Pete Seeger. And Lee Hayes was broken. The first performance of If I Had a Hammer was in 1949 in Peekskill, New York, and there was a giant right-wing riot, and they burned crosses, and they smashed everything, and 
They got out with their lives just barely. The New York State Police, they intervened by adding their helicopter to the attack on the folk singers. Aerial war in, in, in upstate New York. And it broke Lee. But the last line, he's thinking about one time, he would sing these old gospel songs and he'd make them over into freedom songs. And he says, for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. And that to me is the hope right now. The hope is not like, don't worry, it's all going to work out. I can't tell you that. For a while, it's possible not to be scared even. So I start and end. Like you said, you sang Deo in elementary school. I sang If I Had a Hammer in elementary school. I had no idea that this was a freedom song. I had no idea that Deo was a freedom song, that Harry Belfonte had bankrolled the civil rights movement, that he was Martin Luther King's right-hand man, that he put his own life on the line with Sidney Poitier being chased by the Klan through the Mississippi night. And when he does, these activists meet him and they start to sing Deo and he changes it. And he says, freedom, freedom coming soon, right? And the important thing about these stories is Harry, Harry's still alive, late 90. He's an angry man. I mean, civil rights movement, as far as he's concerned, oh, well, geez, everything worked out. I guess we ended racism in America. No, the struggle is long. He was defeated. Lee Hayes was defeated. The struggle is long. And whether you're taking it from where you guys do, from a certain kind of classical conservatism or where I am, we're both talking about democracy as something that we need to make, right? And that's where I need that book to be bookended to sort of say, look, the struggle's long. We've been in this for a long time. We're not in crisis. We're in the long struggle. Let me ask this. Do you think that the freedom movement, if there is such a thing, maybe the pro-democracy movement, is it afraid to get beat up today? Wow, that's a really interesting question, Reed. I, I mean, not all of it, obviously. And there's some kids in the book who are kind of in as much as there's heroes besides these long forgotten singers, Black River Falls, Wisconsin, which is a little town. And this is right after Roe Falls and this group of young women. And they're out there on the bridge, this town, not Madison, let me put it that way, right? And they're out there with their signs, their pro-choice signs. And there's a town preacher who, this big guy standing over this woman, four foot 11, screaming at her that she's a whore and going to hell. And she holds her ground, you know? And I talked to them, and this also goes to sort of your fear about like violence on our side. She does stand her ground. Later, I talked to a group of them, some of them college, some of them high school, student body presidents, you know, straight-laced kids. And um, I say a lot of folks out there, a lot of these folks with militias and so on think there's a civil war coming. And I think this will stun them. And instead, they're like, oh, yeah, we're ready. And this is small town, Wisconsin. This is hunting country. They're ready and they're armed and they know how to shoot. And think they may have to. And that, on the one hand, terrifies me because this isn't Red Dawn. That's not how it's going to work. On the other hand, that heart and that courage, right? They're willing to show up for the struggle. In fact, they don't really see themselves as having a choice. This is not something they wanted. You know, The leader of the group's like, I wanted to go and be a, an academic. I wanted to go to graduate school. I'm in college and I'm loving it, but I don't know if that's available to me. So, but yes, we're starting to see some changes, but no, I think overall the pro-democracy movement is not even really ready to take a punch metaphorically in the political sphere, right? Like, step up. The media, step up. I mean, why are we not in the media doing that work? We're afraid of being seen as partisan. You know, years ago I wrote about, and I mentioned earlier about fascism abroad in Uganda, which is 
pretty much a U.S. proxy state in East Africa. I spent some time with the author of a bill, which he was happy to call the Kill the Gays bill. That's what it did. Death penalty for homosexuality. It didn't pass then. This was 10 years ago. It just passed. It did have American supporters. He was very clear. He's like, you know, this is how I did this. Uh, Senator James Inhofe is kind of a mentor to me. And even then, when I was first writing about that, people said, Charlotte shows his point of view. He's chosen a side. I'm like, yeah, you're right. In the genocide question, I feel comfortable. (laughs) Be on the anti-genocide side. Yeah. And in the (laughs) democracy question, I feel comfortable on that. I think the right has forced us into a which side are you on? That's unfortunate. That's not how I'd like things to be, but it is. I did a little get together. I live here in Utah, Jeff, Summit County, Park City. And a guy that's been a supporter of ours said, hey, I got like 12, 13 guys in town. These guys are interested in what you do. Come and tell them. And they're asking me about DeSantis and they're asking me about Nikki Haley and all these other things. Is there a Republican you'd support? And I go through the thing and they're like, yeah, but you're a pragmatist. And I said, I am not. I am not a pragmatist. And they said, but you're a moderate. And I said, I am not a moderate. I am very much a partisan. I am very much a partisan. What I do every day is get up and be a partisan for what I believe is right, not only for the country, for the world, for every individual, for all 8 billion people on the planet, right? And it was pretty hard for these all very successful guys staying at this beautiful home, Jeff, to get that. And what I, when I try and tell them is, you can't go back. If we're not yet, Jeff, in a new epic, we will be soon, in a new era soon. We are in a transitional time, I think, to your point about inevitability. We don't know how it's going to turn out yet. But I'll tell you this, like the idea that you know, so many people have this figment of their imagination, Jeff, of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill sitting in the Oval Office drinking scotch together as if it was like a nightly occurrence, right, that they were sort of hail fellow well met with one another in the context of their time. They did the things they believed necessary for the United States and for the government of the United States. But we shouldn't take that as like, you know, they were best buds, right? That Tip was coming over for dinner three nights a week with Ronnie and Nancy. I think of it in terms of the worst president in U.S. history, who is not Donald Trump, of course. It's James Buchanan. Trump may get there. He's given him a run for his money, but he hasn't done it yet. But Buchanan has this one gorgeous line, which is early on. And he's no friend to the abolitionist movement at all. But his party allies are urging him to really put the kibosh on them because it's noisy and it's loud and, and, you know, it's uncivil, right? And he says, I'm not going to be heavy handed here. He says, I like the noise of democracy. I love this. I like the noise of democracy. Democracy is not about harmony. It's not about Tip O'Neill and Reagan sipping scotch. It's about cacophony. The cacophony of argument rather than gunfire. You know, you said we're in a new, maybe in a transition period. I would say, you know, I argue in the book, I borrow a, a term from a friend of mine, Jeff Ruoff, the Trumpocene, you know, the Anthropocene, the Trumpocene. The age of Reagan, many political scientists and historians would say it goes from 1980 to 2016. And that Reagan was so influential, for better or worse, he shaped some of the fundamental terms of how the United States thinks of itself, how it acts in the world. Democrats like Obama and Clinton deal with that in one way, Republicans another, but it's the reigning paradigm. That changed. We're now in the Trumpocene. How long it goes? Who is its avatar? That I don't know, but we're in the Trumpocene. That is a definitive change. You take down a major party, 
you have transformed American life. And we can't go back. And I think this is a little bit like this undercurrent in the book of grief, but not mourning, which is to say, we've lost some things. With climate, we're losing stuff. Salt Lake. It's about to be a gigantic cloud of arsenic. That's going to happen. That's loss. And I write in the book, you know, I at, weirdly at a young age, 44, I had two heart attacks. And that's actually helps me understand some of what's going on in the book. Because when you have a heart attack, it's weird. Everyone tells you, oh, your heart's going to be stronger than ever. It's going to be like, you never had a heart attack. I'm like, do you not understand biology? Part of your heart wall is dead. It's scar tissue. Now, you can learn to live with that. I am healthier now than I was before, but that part's not coming back. Salt Lake's not coming back. The GOP is not coming back. The age of Reagan, for better or worse, is not coming back. I mean, and that's why this book is sort of scenes from the slow civil war. It's not a book with solutions. It's not follow my three-step plan. We're in the Trumpocene. What do we do now? But I think that's the real perspective. And I have said this, people are like, what comes next? And I say, I don't know. I don't know what comes next, but I'll tell you this, if we don't win this part of it writ large, like it will be out of our hands individually and collectively. In the undertow, I drive across the country at the end. I'm sort of thinking about this book I read to my kids when they were little going on a bear hunt. Oh, sure. We're going on a bear hunt, a bear hunt, a bear hunt. Yeah. Can't go. And they keep encounter uh, tall grass or mud or a river. Can't go under it. Can't go over it. Just got to go through it. Right. This is the fascism ahead. I am optimistic that this fascism won't last forever because none ever has. But I do think we have to go through it. Well, listen, this has been fascinating. I hope we can do it again sooner than later. Jeff, before we let you go, where can our listeners, if you're on social media, find you there? And where can they find your work? Twitter, obviously. I haven't given up on it. And I write for Vanity Fair. I'm a contributing editor for Vanity Fair. There's actually a new excerpt from the book out, The Guns Are What Matters. And it's the scene from Rifle Colorado with Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert's grill. Not Lauren Boebert. The hell with her. The people who find that compelling, the people who look at her and say, yes, there's our leader. Yeah, and we shouldn't overlook that they have menu items like guacamole. Guacamole. Like I had a guac nine burger, but the manager put his hand on his gun and made me leave before I finished my guac nine. What kind of freedom is that? What kind of freedom is that? Even a rifle. Well, as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok as long as it's legal at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Jeff Charlotte, thank you. This has been fascinating. Everybody else, we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us and if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy visit jointheunion.us for the lincoln project i'm reed galen i'll see you on the next episode